1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, the Solidarity Singers are, are still at the yes, Capitol, huh? they're back. They're still there. They're still there, huh? 2012 is calling, and once it's protest back, well, I mean, it's kind of like we've been here every day since Scott Walker got elected, and maybe somebody should tell him that Walker's not the governor anymore. Well, so Molly Beck from the paper reported this, so did Scott Bauer from the AP. He says, in case anyone was wondering whether the daily protest singers who started when Governor Walker was governor would leave, here is your answer. They're still there. One sign says, Scott free, another says, still a liar, and has a picture of the governor, former governor. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Maybe again. Maybe somebody just say, should say it's not 2011 anymore. But when you're desperately in need of a life, this is it. You know. Speaking of that, there was an interesting story that our Tony Baddock had. There were now. Of course, I, I thought we we were free to protest in the people's house. But yesterday at the uh, Evers inauguration, apparently there were two Scott Walker supporters who hung a sign that said "Thanks, Governor Walker," and those, those signs were taken down and they were removed. So. Yeah. Um, I guess it's the people's house, and then it's not the people's house. Well, the solidarity singers are still there. All right, let's get started. By the way, I understand that the the big story from the world of sports, and of course, whenever you're talking about the Packers in Wisconsin, that that transcends just sports, is the fact that there is now a a new head coach, or there will be a new head coach announced tomorrow. Uh, in the 2 o'clock hour, uh, we will discuss whether the new head coach is going to be more like Mike Holmgren, who was a very successful head coach, or more like Mike Sherman, who was not a very successful coach. We're going to discuss that during the 2 p.m. hour of today's show. Oh, by the way, if you ever want to get a head start on figuring out some of the things that we're going to be talking about on the program, just follow me on Twitter. It's at Jeff Wagner 620 and I try to send out a link to some of the different stories that we're going to be talking about and when. Here is the story we start out with, and I, I want to back into this a little bit. As somebody who makes his living during doing spoken word radio, I, I don't know if you understand how the, the show is done, but th- there is no script. <laughs> there, there isn't. I have in front of me, well, a, a little stack of, of stories that I want to talk about, and in some cases I've underlined a particular portion of the story, but I don't have anything that's written out. Occasionally I might make a note to remind myself of something that I want to say about a particular story, but otherwise this program is completely extemporaneous. Now it's just, and that's why that if you listen and you occasionally hear me struggling for a word or something it's because i'm i'm thinking while i'm <laughs> i'm talking and at the same time there's all this other stuff that, that's going on but it is a spoken word live radio show when you watch television particularly local television some of it is scripted some of it isn't for example the the newscast when you watch a newscast on tv and you see the anchors at the anchor desk they are they are almost always reading scripts and teleprompters. It, it is a scripted event. There are aspects, though, of the news shows that, that aren't scripted. For example, when if you see the anchors leave the anchor desk and they've got some guest that's in there and they go to another set, they're, they're, they're talking off the top of their head. For six and a half years, I, I used to work with Channel 4, and we did this. We did a couple segments on their their form, their previous Live at 3 News, where it was an unscripted thing. So it was either me sitting on a TV set 
or me staring into a, a camera in another part of the newsroom, but my comments were completely and totally unscripted. It wasn't as if I was reading anything. And sometimes when you're engaged in an ongoing back and forth and it's unscripted and you're trying to think as you're talking and anticipate you know, what you're going to be saying next, occasionally it is possible to have a slip of the tongue. I have ongoing nightmares Despite the fact that I have done this for a living for, you know, full or part time for 23 years now, I, I, you always have ongoing nightmares that you are going to have one of those slips of the tongue. As I was saying to Steve Scafidi earlier, there used to be a Packers guard. His name was Josh Sitton. And whenever that name came up, I always had to stop and slow down a little bit because I didn't want to mispronounce that name because I was afraid of what it would sound like. I don't think I ever did, but you've always got that fear when you're talking on on live radio or live television, you're talking extemporaneously, that you might misspeak. Now, not all television is, of course, live and unscripted. For example, you you might remember last May, there was a controversy involving a, a TBS talk show host, comedian, Samantha B, who on her show, she, during part of her monologue, referred to Ivanka Trump by using the C word, right? That was not an accident. That was not something that just kind of came out of nowhere. That was something that was in the script and pin, had been approved presumably by all the people who had a chance to review that. It was a taped show, and, you know, it was in the script, so she intended to do it. And if you will recall, she apologized, and there were no other consequences. All right, so that's the background of this story. Last Friday, there is a local weatherman in Rochester, New York. He is on live television, and he you know, as they often do, you're on TV, you're back in the studio, and they've got a camera. You've got a, you know, you'll see it. There's a camera down at Red Arrow Park, and people are skating or whatever, and there's our pictures coming from Red Arrow Park. Well, what the anchor man does is apparently the park that the live shot was coming from was Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Park. And as he is talking on live television, he says, all right, here's here's the shot. It's from Dr. Martin Luther. And then he throws in a word which sort of sounds like king but isn't and could be interpreted and, and in a certain context clearly is a racial slur. And he says that and then he says King Jr. Park. I think I could probably say that word on the radio, but I, I don't want to. It's it's an antiquated, it's an old-fashioned sort of racial slur, but it's clearly a racial slur. The guy, he, he says it as part of his introduction to this, and nobody seems to notice it because I, I think it was clearly, at least when I heard it and saw the video of it, it seemed to me like it was a slip of the tongue. So he goes on, no, nobody says anything. Well, somebody who's viewing this then posts it on Facebook and says, I can't believe you allow the, again, this is this guy who makes this racist statement on television, and then there's this huge uproar, and he is immediately fired by the TV station pretty much as soon as they, they look at it. He has now issued 
well, it, it's really not an apology. He essentially says, I, I didn't, I, it was just a slip of the tongue. We're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, I want to play you what the weatherman says happened. And then we're going to open up the phone lines and ask whether or not he should be fired for the comment, the one word he said during the news broadcast last Friday. Stick around. 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, so the weather guy's name is Jeremy Kappel. He is the chief, or was, the chief meteorologist at a TV station in Rochester, New York. He was summarily dismissed after being on the air last Friday and making a reference to Martin Luther, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Park. But after he said Dr. Martin Luther, a word slipped in that sort of sounds like King, but isn't. And a viewer said, look, this guy's a racist. I can't believe he said this. And he has been fired. He took to Facebook after being fired. In the Facebook uh, broadcast, he is standing in his home next to his wife. Here, Here's what he said, his explanation for what happened. It runs a couple minutes. I'm going to play it in its entirety. Here's what he said. Hey everybody, Jeremy Kappel with my wife Lisa here. Um, we wanted to take a time to address uh, what has happened over the last several days since um, my uh, weathercast on Friday. Um, before we get to that, I do want to take the time to thank you, thank all of our family, thank all of our friends for the enormous amount of support that you have given us since the very, very beginning. Um, I want to take the time to thank our neighbors. Uh, you know, we just had uh, one of our neighbors over here just a few minutes ago with nothing but love and support, hugs and tears, and, and we couldn't be doing this without you guys. Thank you to our church for reaching out and for offering. Uh, we know what will be continuing support throughout this ordeal. Uh, that means a ton. Uh, we need your, your thoughts, your prayers, and your love at this time. Um, and I also want to thank everybody on social media. Even those that don't know us, the outpouring has been just unbelievable, and it's been so it's been so heartwarming, and we needed it. It's been such a, a tumultuous couple of days for us. We've had hardly any sleep at all, and uh, it's just been very very hard on me and my family. Um, so thank you. Uh, what happened on Friday? You know, to me, I, I, it's a simple misunderstanding. Um, if you watch me regularly, you know that I tend to contain a lot of information in my weathercast, uh, which forces me to speak fast. Uh, and unfortunately, I spoke a little too fast when I was referencing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So fast to the point where I jumbled a couple of words. Now, in my mind, I, I knew I had mispronounced, but there was no malice. There was nothing that I could have... I had no idea the way it came across to many people. I, as soon as I had started mispronouncing it, I put an emphasis on King and moved on. Had no idea uh, what some people could have interpreted that as. And I know some people did interpret that the wrong way. That was not a word that I said. I promise you that. Uh, and if you did feel that it had hurt you in any way, I sincerely apologize. I would never want to tarnish the reputation of such a great man as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., one of the greatest civic leaders of, of all time. He changed the world forever, and he changed the world for better. I would never do that. Okay, with that being said, um, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to pursue this career of meteorology. I think I need to say that, that uh, you know, I'm just... Uh, 
for almost 20 years, I've had the fortune of pursuing my love of this science. And I want to thank this woman and this family for helping me do that. And it was a little over a year ago that we, our journey brought us up here to Rochester with this wonderful opportunity. And I've got, I can't say it was a mistake coming up here. We've met so many wonderful people that have taken us into their homes. And overall, until recently, it's been an extremely positive experience. With that being said, I'm so disappointed that my career could end this way. And extremely disappointed at the decisions made by my television station, whom I expected a certain level of support from, and I did not receive at all. And so here we are looking for what we're going to do next. I can't speak to their intent. I can only speak to mine. And in no way, and those that know me, you know, I don't even have to say, I would never intend harm that way to anyone. And for those also that are out there that may be hurting because someone has cast judgment on them so quickly or something that was said or maybe something that they didn't say. They stumbled their words and a video got out. Please hold back your judgment as our great teacher tells us. Judge not, thou be not judged. In the meantime, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for your support. Um, we'll be in touch. Okay, so that's that's it's about four minutes long. That's the anchorman. He's uh, anchorman, the, the weather guy. He says, "Look, I've been doing this for twenty years. It was live television. I was speaking quickly. I tend to speak quickly, and I just sort of jumbled a particular word. I didn't mean anything by this. It just it happened." And he said, "Look, I'm I'm sorry if people were offended, but there wasn't any sort of malicious intent." All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. All right, was it appropriate to, to fire somebody if, if in fact, it, it's true that here you have, in this case, it's a weather guy on live television who just inadvertently mentions a word which contains what would be, it's kind of an archaic racial slur, but it, it just misspeaks and that word comes out is it appropriate to fire him or is this a case of well perhaps political correctness being run amok 414-799-1620 and his tv station by the way they didn't conduct an investigation to determine if there was any malicious intent they were just oh we've got these people on facebook saying we've got a racist weather guy we have to fire him was that an overreaction? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a moment. It's 1225. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1227. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. A number of people can't, don't understand what the word was. Um, there, there is a, for example, I can say without any problem at all, the raccoons got into my garbage the other night. Well, if you take a variation of that word and you apply it to people of a particular racial group, that is a slur that is completely and totally inappropriate. And that that's the slip of the tongue. At least that's what he says. It was a slip of the tongue that he made. Um, let's see. Jeff, the poor man. Don't we have a position in Milwaukee for a weather forecaster? We should hire him. Let's see. Uh, all right, here's another text. He's a prime candidate for the Trump administration. He will be fine. All right. Look, here, here's the bottom line of this. And, and I, I make this point all the time. First of all, there is this double standard that, that is out there. You have people who can intentionally 
say really, really, really vile things and have almost no consequences or essentially no consequences taken against them. And this is this is it's not for slips of the tongue. It's look, this is what we are going to end up saying. And then you have situations. Now, again, if, if you conduct an investigation and you determine that this guy on live television intended to issue a racial slur towards Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., well, of course you fire him. Of course that would be completely appropriate to do. But if, on the other hand, this is an inadvertent sort of thing that happens mistakenly because he, he gets tongue-tied for example, and matter of fact, there's some linguists who are looking at this and saying that, that they understand it, it could have easily come out as um, boon or loon or something like that. Now, it didn't come out that way. But, you know, absent any sort of evil intent, are we overreacting when we say this is what's going to cost you your job? And I guess what bothers me the most about this, and it's the remark that the guy made at the end, he said the station doesn't have his back. He said he's working at this place, and, and nobody nobody apparently comes out to him and cons- and confirms whether or not this isn't an inadvertent thing. Is there history that this guy had made racially insensitive remarks? Well, if there's a history of this, that that's fine. But simply because doing spoken word, in this case live television, he has what by all steps, all appearances, is a slip of the tongue to say that that is going to cost him his job. I think I just think that that is unfair, and I think it's a difficult standard for anybody to be held to. To me, it's one of those things where you whistle him in, you say, look, this has created a little bit of heartache. What you do is you issue this apology and, you know, speak slower the next time and don't let it happen again. 1235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This story involving the woman who died after trying to flee from police and she had her two-year-old daughter with her, it just gets worse and worse. I mean, here's the way the Journal Sentinel reports this. A 19-year-old pregnant woman had her toddler in tow while she and two men committed two violent armed robberies before she, the toddler, and one of the men were killed in a police chase, according to the criminal complaint. The complaint charges a 22-year-old guy named Andre Dyson with armed robbery, attempted armed robbery, and recklessly endangering safety for allegedly shooting at several people who came to the aid of one of the robbery victims. According to the complaint, the robberies preceded the police chase that ended when a black Chevy trailblazer driven by Charles E. Bearfield, 29, crashed into the KK River near South First Street and West Greenfield Avenue about 8.30 p.m. New Year's Eve. The crash killed Bearfield, Sharon Namer, and Namer's two-year-old daughter, Anna Malaya Hernandez. Namer was four weeks pregnant. Here's what the complaint says. Dyson, Namer, that's the mom, and Bearfield were cruising the near south side in the SUV with the baby as they drank alcohol, and Namer, that's the mom, talked about committing robberies. I just, you know, you you just kind of like shake your head at this. Namer, that again is the mom, pointed out a man checking the fluids under the hood of his vehicle near South 14th Street and West Greenfield Avenue before the three pulled over to rob the man, leaving the two-year-old in the SUV. 
Wonder if she was in a car seat. Just wondering. Namor asked the man for change and asked his name before Bearfield pointed a handgun at his head and demanded his property. Namor, but I mentioned that's the mom, then punched the man several times and took his cell phone before she got into his vehicle and attempted to drive off, but the vehicle had a steering wheel lock. Namor and the two men fled. A short time later, she and Dyson tried to rob an elderly woman and her husband as the couple exited their vehicle vehicle in the 1600 block of South 23rd Street. The two approached the victims with handguns, but a language barrier prevented the couple from understanding the duo's demands for cash. Dyson and Namor then began striking the woman and kicking and stomping her as she fell to the pavement. When a couple of neighbors armed with a shotgun and machete came to the aid of the couple, Bearfield and Namor fled with Bearfield firing several shots at the neighbors. The woman suffered injuries beneath her right eye and bleeding from the right ear. Now, like I say, it, it is a tragedy to the extent that this 19-year-old woman who's four weeks pregnant had, had died. There's no question about that. But at the same time, you sit there and you look at a story like this and you say, my God, what what are we coming to? You have this 19-year-old woman who's four weeks pregnant with her two-year-old child in the car who's decided that we're going to cruise the south side drinking and looking for people that we are going to rob at gunpoint. Now, they obviously weren't very good at it, but at the same time, you, you look at a situation like this and you sit and say, how do you end up getting to this point? And it's unfortunate that two of the three armed robbers, including the 19-year-old woman, are, are dead. It's especially tragic that the two-year-old child is dead. But in this particular case, and I remember when this story first came out, there were some people who said, well, you know, maybe the Milwaukee police shouldn't have chased. Maybe this is an example where they should have just let the car go. Now, of course, the Milwaukee police didn't know that this 19-year-old woman was out on an armed robbery spree with her two-year-old child in the car. But again, you read the facts of this complaint. You see what these people had allegedly been doing, and you recognize that there's no blame at all in the police officers for chasing. You know, if anybody is responsible for the death of that two-year-old, it's the guy who, number one, was driving the car trying to flee the police, and then number two... It's the mom who decided she thought it was a good idea to take her two-year-old daughter with her when she goes out on a New Year's Eve robbery spree. All right, when we come back, is President Trump going too far? Stick around. It's 1240. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 1242, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're a regular listener to this program, you know that I am... I'm a big believer in pointing out the, the double standards, and I, I try to not only hold you to, okay, is there a degree of hypocrisy in a point, but I try to hold my, myself to that as well. I mean, that, that's why, for example, I, I pointed out you know, 10 years ago, you've got a representative from California who, during the State of the Union address, um, says when President Obama is speaking, you lie. He is reprimanded by Congress. And yet, you know, a couple a week ago, you have a newly elected freshman representative from Michigan who refers to the president with with a, a vile twelve word, twelve letter word, and you know, it, it's applauded. I mean, it it is that type of double standard that's out there. If, for example, eight years ago you had a newly elected Republican Congress man or woman who had referred to Barack Obama in that way. We're going to go impeach the blank. 
you know that would have been the lead story in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, and, and that furor would not have died down. So to me, again, it's the double standard that, that is out there. But I also apply it to the other side as well. And I say, okay, if this was Barack Obama, for example, or Bill Clinton trying to do something like President Trump is trying to do, what would the reaction be? You know, for what, how would the right react? How would I react? And I don't think you can have the, those double standards, which brings me to the question of the government shutdown and the wall. Now, for the last couple years, I admit, ever since President Trump first started talking about this, I have been skeptical of the need for a physical wall across the entire stretch of the U.S.-Mexican border. To me, it's not practical. It doesn't make sense. There are clearly areas along the border where um, a a fixed, whether it's a fence or a wall or whatever, would make sense. But to run it for hundreds and hundreds of miles through private property, it's never... It's never made sense to me. So I have not been a supporter of a wall extending hundreds and hundreds of acres. Like I said, there might be certain parts where, and there's, there's a wall now, you know, going back to, you know, President Bush's term, you know, they, they, Congress passed an act that provided for fencing and things like that. So we have areas that are walled off. There might be other sections that it's appropriate for a wall, but I think there might other be also be sections where maybe there, there's different things that you can do other than a wall. I don't think that I reject the notion that that makes somebody like me soft on border security. I'm not. It just makes me smart on border security, understanding that there's different parts of the border. There's all sorts of different terrain and and we shouldn't get hung up on one thing or another. I recognize that you may disagree with me on that. And I also recognize that politically, President Trump Really, he's sort of doubled down on on this whole notion, and now we're in this – we're essentially at a stalemate where the question becomes, who blinks first? If President Trump agrees to reopen the part of the government that shut down without getting funding for the wall, have the Democrats beaten him? If the Democrats decide that, okay, we're going to give you uh, some money – And in the overall scheme of things, given what they're talking about, whether – I mean, look, I understand a billion dollars is a lot of money. Believe me, I I get it, or $2 billion or whatever. In the overall scheme of the federal government, when you're talking about border security, it's not like – it's not like we're talking about, you know, a portion of the national debt or anything like that. But now this is just both sides have have dug in, and whoever blinks is going to be considered to be the loser. So President Trump is going to be speaking to the nation tonight, and he's going to outline his case as to why, you know, we need this for, for national security, and that's fine. But one of the other ideas that is being floated around is the president is saying that he may declare a national emergency and essentially say, I'm I'm not going to pay attention to Congress. We have a national emergency and we're going to begin construction of the wall. Now, you might say, how does the president do this? Well, in 1976, Congress passed something called the National Emergencies Act, which permits the president to pronounce a national emergency at his discretion. The act offers no definition of emergency. It lays out no criteria. It demands no showing by the president. Essentially, 
any president can simply say, we have a national emergency. And by declaring a national emergency, it gives the president access to dozens of laws that have specialized funds he would otherwise not have. Um, For example, there's one federal statute that during a national emergency makes available unobligated funds originally set aside for military construction projects. The problem is that the national emergency must require the use of an of armed forces. The idea behind this is, hey, if suddenly you know we're attacked, and, you know, and we need to use the armed forces, and we need to mobilize right away, and we need to get them paid, well, you could do it in that context. There, there's another law which um, permits the president to divert funds from Army Civil Works projects and reprogram them. Congress then has to approve those projects. Bottom line is, if President Trump were to declare a national emergency, he may or may not have the authority legally to use it to build a wall. But the bigger question is, is this a national emergency? And is this a tactic that the president should use? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. And for example, if if President Obama decided to say, you know what, I think um, I think there's aspects of the environment, global warming, which I consider to be a national emergency. So I'm going to use that authority to do whatever I want to do. Would you have problems with that? Is this a national emergency in that sense? Or is this just a, a typical political battle which, you know, will be won by one side or the other blinking or, heaven forbid, them reaching a compromise. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Candidly, I appreciate border security, but, you know, I don't think things are worse now than they were two, three, four years ago. And I don't think a wall is the type of thing that, again, Funds for a wall, I don't think it's appropriate to use national emergency. I think the president is right to make his case, and if people disagree with it not being funded, they have every right to vote the Democrats out of office. But I'm concerned with the precedent that this would set. 1250, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Now, look, this is an issue. I don't care where you stand on the idea of building the wall or, or not. I am... Um, I am agnostic and I am skeptical. I've been that way for the last couple of years. But the question becomes, is this a national emergency, which would essentially give the president well, powers not unlike a king to say, Congress doesn't approve of this. I can't get the votes through, but I'm going to do it anyways. And and is, isn't that kind of a scary concept, whether it's Donald Trump doing it or Barack Obama doing it or Bill Clinton doing it? Let's start with Doug and McGuanago. Doug, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. What do you um, think? I I would agree with you that I don't like presidential actions like this, but you know that the Democrats, essentially at the point they are right now, they're not going to do anything. Right. They're 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 not going to give in, and President Trump isn't going to give in. Right. Well, I mean, not only are they not going to do the fence, they're not going to do anything which decreases illegal immigration. But I I think he's framing it incorrectly. Now, you as a former federal prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Where would you say, what, do you agree that we have a crisis right now with opiate addiction? Yes. 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 Where do most of those narcotics come into the country from? 
Well, at least a good portion of the opioids come from South America. Yes, South America, but I believe they come into the country through our southern border. Okay. At least, uh, maybe not even a majority, but a significant minority of those drugs come in that way. Anything we can do to make those drugs more scarce, more expensive, I mean, what are they saying? There are more people dying of opioid overdoses right now than there are from car accidents. Well, yeah, but thanks to call, Doug. Okay, but I, but see, that's a tough argument to make. And, and again, when when I started chasing drug dealers, it, w- it was it was in the eighties, and back then you had cocaine was the drug of choice. So let's let's talk cocaine. You had cocaine that was pouring into this country through South Florida from South America. A wall would, and, and see, that's that's one of the problems I have, candidly, with using the wall as a justification to to stop drug trafficking. Because what what happened is, I mean, you, you didn't have walls in South Florida, but you didn't need walls in South Florida. How were the drugs getting in during the eighties? Well, you'd have, you know, every every criminally inclined private pilot in the world would fill up their airplanes with cocaine and they'd fly them in and they'd drop them at remote airstrips. Or you'd have people who would would smuggle them in by, again, hiding them in suitcases or whatever and, and coming into the country through airports or things like that. I guess I'm I am very, very skeptical of the notion that if, if our goal is to stop drug trafficking by, by building a wall, might it stop certain couriers from coming in? Yeah, but I'd be really curious to see the amount of, of not of drugs that come in illegally, illegally, but the amount of illegal drugs that are coming in through the border that would be stopped by a wall. Like I say, you know, back in the 80s when you wanted to smuggle cocaine in, you hired a pilot, you filled it up the plane, or you hired a motorboat or whatever, and you landed at some you know remote place up the coast the other thing that is of a concern people need to keep this in mind when the president talks about a wall all right it's not just all government land that you're talking about there's a lot of areas along the border where the border cuts through private property so do we want to say to the president all right now you've got the authority by declaring a national emergency that we're going to let people take private property you know that that your backyard all right, well, okay, it's not your backyard anymore. We're going to build this wall or we're going to build a fence. I mean, there's all these different issues that are out there. I understand reasonable people can disagree about the wall, but to me, it's something it's something that needs to be worked out in the political context as opposed to saying this is a national emergency because my concern is What's going to happen the next time? Do we set a precedent for somebody other than Donald Trump to say, all right, this is a, I consider this issue to be a national crisis or this issue to be a national crisis. So I don't care what Congress says. I'm going to essentially take it upon myself to do things that I otherwise wouldn't be empowered to do. I understand certain national emergencies. 9-11 created a national emergency, a need to respond. Pearl Harbor created a national emergency. The president needs to act and act quickly. I'm not sure that this is that case. 1257, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, I, I am now learning that since I since I moved, I have a, a little bit longer commute. I got to turn the radio on first thing in the morning because I, I got caught in that mess. It seems like I-43. It, we, we talk about a lot of messes, but more often than not, 
I-43 southbound it is always a disaster, so you, too. You got hit in that road work today. I got caught in the road work because what happened is, all right, I, I'm kind of scoping out where I get off on the freeway, and sure. the traffic is moving great. So I get on the freeway. I'm humming along thinking, okay, this is going to be fine. And then all of a sudden, dead stop. To which I then immediately turn on WTMJ, the 10 o'clock news. And I heard you, as a matter of fact, saying, all right, one lane closed. It's just a mess. And so I, I ended up being close enough. I got off on Good Hope Road and took the really long, really circuitous way around here. But it's still a mess, huh? Yeah, still slow. Just well, one of those midday things. Okay, well, no, here's the bottom line. I listened to Tony Evers' inauguration speech yesterday, and he said that the roads are going to be taken care of. We, this is a new, new era, so... All right, we don't have anything to worry about. I'm willing to give him, oh, a few weeks at least. But all right, but then there's not going to be any more road problems because Tony Evers says he's the governor and he's going to take care of it. He is the governor, and he says he's going to take care of it. So we'll we'll see how that all plays out over the next couple of years. But, yeah, it's... Uh Yes, I was caught in that this morning, but I, I did. It was my own fault. I didn't have WTMJ on before I hit the the roadblock, uh-huh. the stop. Uh-huh. Uh, so that was See? that was my fault. I have learned. That's the bottom line. Tune in. Keep it tuned to WTMJ. Twenty four seven. You will miss nothing. And I have learned to be careful what words I use because you'll call me out if I say that. <laughs> oh, you can get through there. And I sat in traffic right. for forty five minutes. Exactly. Well, it, that, that's constructive commentary because <laughs> I'm I I'm just the, I am the voice of of all of all our fans who mm, are there saying what is, what does he mean here? I'm stuck in this. No, but your your report was accurate. One okay, lane yeah, closed. Yeah. Um. I would use other words to describe it, but I was I was stuck in it. I was not on on the radio. All right, if I regularly get press releases from various groups, and and most of them it, it come in the form of emails, and I will be honest with you, most of the times I look at the subject line and it's just delete, 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 because you, you get so many of them. This one caught my attention when it came into my mailbox this morning. Milwaukee County Zoo shamed on list of 10 worst zoos for elephants. All right, and then I I started reading this. Now, this is, here's the way it starts. Um, It's dated January 8th, 2019. I got it this morning. Captive elephants are being failed by U.S. zoos, and their suffering has been exposed today by In Defense of Animals on its respected annual list, I'm quoting now, of the 10 worst zoos for elephants in North America, now in its 15th year. The 2018 list reveals outdated, failing, and cruel practices that are harming and killing elephants in U.S. zoos. Milwaukee County Zoo in Wisconsin is shamed as the number 10 worst zoo for wasting $25 million to expand its cold climate elephant exhibit, money that would be better spent on conserving elephants in the wild. Now, but by the way, this this making the 2018 list, it appears to be they were also on the 2017 and at least 2016 list verbatim for for the same thing. So, the zoo has been a mainstay on this this particular list. Now, what is this group all bent out of shape about? Well, if if you were at the zoo last summer, maybe even before, you perhaps noticed that there was this huge construction that was going on, and, and that's because the zoo has taken, in, as one of their major uh, capital improvement projects, what they've done is they are building th- this new exhibit called Adventure Africa. And what 
what they've done is it's where all this new construction is. Um, they've designed this, and it started in 2015. They've, the zoo right now has two 37-year-old African elephants, Brittany, that they've had since June of 2001, that they got from the Greenville Zoo in South Carolina, and then they, they've gotten another. There's another uh, elephant, Ruth. All right, and Ruth arrived in 20, December of 2006. So they, they've had these elephants for quite a while. Adventure Africa. Now, this is the new thing that the zoo is building. This is the way they describe it. The largest physical change to the Milwaukee County Zoo, transforming 25% of its footprint since um, the zoo officially opened at its present location in 1961. Um, Africa Adventure Phase 1 is made possible, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, by the, the, the funding. The Adventure Africa gives visitors an up-close experience with the zoo's resident African elephants in the hope of expire, inspiring people to learn more about the species in the wild and perhaps take action to conserve their dwindling populations. Um, they say that research says that the quality and similarity to an elephant's natural habitat is more important then exhibit size. And it says the zoo adhered to changing standards put forth by the American Zoo Association when designing Adventure Africa. The outdoor area of the new elephant exhibit is four times larger than the current indoor and outdoor space combined. The zoo says particular emphasis has been placed on the quality and variety of features to the new exhibit for stimulation and continuing enrichment of the lives of the animals. One of the biggest concerns for elephants in human care is their foot and muscular skeletal health, the type of exhibit flooring materials important for this concern, etc., etc. So the bottom line is that they're spending a ton of money, and it is to make the new habitat a lot larger, make it a lot more elephant-friendly as it was. And for this, the zoo has now made the list for the third year in a row for the same reason of one of the ten worst zoos in the country, in North America, for elephants. And, you know, this group points out, I'm looking again at their press release, many zoos have shut down their elephant exhibits or plan to phase them out. In Defense of Animals is calling for the Milwaukee County Zoo to do the same. All right. We urge Milwaukee County Zoo to put an end to this elephant-sized mistake, repurpose the Africa exhibit entirely, and send Ruth and Brittany, those are the elephants, to thaw out at an accredited sanctuary. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, I, I go to the zoo several times during the course of the summer. Always go for, uh, they used to call it zoo a la carte. I don't know if they still call it that. But I always go then, and, and generally speaking, maybe one or two other times during the year. One of my favorite exhibits is the elephant exhibit. Is this cruel? Is the zoo making a mistake by now putting these elephants? And this new exhibit, by the way, is going to open uh, to the public, I think, in in the spring. I think it's going to open in May. The elephants are there now getting used to the, the new environment, but they're not on display currently. All right, this group says it is shameful, and Milwaukee should be ashamed of itself for having elephants at their zoo. Do they have a point or... Is this a radical fringe group that, that once again is missing the larger point? 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a minute. Should the Milwaukee County Zoo get rid of the elephants? And 
from your perspective as somebody who goes to the zoo perhaps from time to time, you know, do you think the elephant exhibit is important? I don't see any evidence at all indicating that these African elephants have been mistreated at all. They've been around for over a decade. And would they really be better at this point in time turned and released into the wild? Tough for me to see that. 414-799-1620. All right, is this a waste of money? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 119, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Our number, 414-799-1620. I, I admit, this is the sort of thing that hacks me off. All right? I think... First of all, I think there is a lot to be gained by human beings, particularly people who aren't experts in animals, having the ability to see and appreciate the beauty of animals. All right. That, that's that's number one. Number two, I think the Milwaukee County Zoo deserves a lot of credit for recognizing that you you have to be able to expand. Now, what's going on now is they have undertaken an incredibly expensive and extensive renovation project at the zoo. They're moving the elephants into an area that is four times as large as where they are are presently housed. Now, they're in the new area right now. It opens in the spring. It's going to have all sorts of other stuff for the elephants, which makes it closer to their natural habitat. Now, I understand African elephants come from Africa, and so you, you don't have the cold weather there. I get that. But that notwithstanding, you read about this exhibit, and it seems kind of like it's, it's sort of a Taj Mahal of places for elephants. And you've got this, again, anti-zoo group that is out there taking on the elephants, 414-799-1620, and, and the zoo. Well, I, I think zoos serve a purpose, Absent any evidence that the elephants are being treated inhumanely, and I don't think anybody seriously suggests that, I think, I don't know, I think this time for these groups to just kind of go away. Tom in Greenfield. Tom, you're first. Good afternoon. How you doing, Jeff? Hi, Tom. I think the whole zoo needs to be uh, re-overhauled, uh, re- mm-hmm. I think, because uh, uh, friends of mine went last year, and they were disappointed, and uh, it just seems like we've let it, uh, how do you say the word, uh, fall into despair just like everything else has in uh, in our area here it's supposed to be a a, a shining point for it's for everybody not just uh, for a few and, and if we can't afford it maybe we should get the kids and everybody else in the communities to start uh, nickels dimes quarters and stuff and start uh, fixing up the exhibits uh, little by little and, and show it's the it's the people zoo not the, not just the, for select few well i tell you tom i mean actually in this particular case I mean, this this renovation, I don't know when the last time you were there was, but I mean, when there, th- this is huge, and it's the largest capital improvement project, project I believe, that they've undertaken since the, since the zoo was located there in the 60s. I, I mean, when I was there, I was last there, I think it's in August or whenever, the, the, again, I don't think they call it zoo a la carte anymore, but it, it's everybody knows what I'm talking about. It, it was, and you could kind of look through the chain link fence and see it. That's going to open up in, in May. It, it's a major, a major renovation, and my understanding is that this is just phase one of what is going to be a larger project. So, I mean, they're, they're putting money into the zoo, and, and I agree. This is a, this is kind of a natural, a national treasure. I, I mean, I think the zoo is incredible. It's one of the reasons why, what in Milwaukee County, where you have all these different competing needs, and, and we were having the ongoing debate about, you know, the, the the domes, and you're having the debate about, you know, where is the money to build a new safety building? I mean, you you can't 
especially given the, the pension problems. You, you, you can't fund everything. I'm glad to see that the zoo is at least one of those priorities. But the larger point here is you have people who are just it's it's the same sort of folks that, that try to and in some cases have succeeded in putting the circuses out of business. And I'm not saying that you couldn't have found a bad circus somewhere that might have had an animal that was mistreated. But this idea that, oh, this is just terrible, we, we can't have these, I don't buy that. Here's a text. Uh, Jeff, we have a three-year-old daughter, and we have taken her the last two years. She loves the elephants. It's going to be an annual thing with her. Um, I think the older she gets, she would be extremely disappointed if the elephants weren't there well well absolutely here's another text this is from jeff the fringe group is just starting to shut down the zoo like what happened with SeaWorld. the zoo should actually get credit for upgrading conditions that are probably safer already than being out in the wild and preyed upon by poachers after ivory tusks or whatever um i, I mean again i I think we do a pretty darn good job with the zoo. I, I, I say that. But this is one where if you want to, like, lump it into a category, and that's why I was so intrigued when I got this email, well, what's going on at the zoo? And and it, it's really like no good deed goes unpunished. You've got two elephants who have been in certain conditions, and those elephants, again, there's no evidence that they're mistreated. We're going to spend $16 million, and we're going to quadruple the size of the place where they are. We're going to provide all these other things which are much more consistent with their natural habitat than we already have. And for this, for this, you know, you, you make a list of one of the 10 worst zoos for elephants in North America. Well, to me, it's this group that's got its collective head up a certain part of their anatomy. And again, I you got to understand, the agenda is we don't want to have elephants in zoos. I am not at that point, and I don't think most people should be. Check out the new Adventure Africa exhibit at the zoo. It opens up this spring, and say hi to the two elephants. What are the names? Ruth and Ruth is one, and is it Brittany? Brittany and Ruth. Say hi to the elephants. They're going to be happier than they ever were. My guess is you look at them, they're going to be pretty happy in general. It's 125, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. One thirty-five, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Gru, who's back healthy today? You feeling better? Better than yesterday. Okay, well, we're not going to get too terribly close. We're separated by that glass wall because I don't want to catch whatever it was that, that you had. It, it is it is a sign of age, though. There was a story in the Journal Sentinel. Hampton Inn will replace aging North Shore Event Center in Glendale. All right. So it and it's it's a story about how there's this th- there was an aging Radisson Hotel there. And then the, they decided that they were going to, OK, um, like split up the hotel from the restaurant facilities, et cetera. And that's been there because it was an aging Radisson Hotel. And now they decide they're going to replace the aging North Shore Events Center with a new Hampton Inn. I bring that up because it is a sign of age. That site that has now been the site of multiple aging hotels. That's where my grade school was. <laughs> that That's the site of what used to be, if you grew up around here, Green Tree Elementary School. And it, it does kind of make you feel old when you're saying, okay, I went to grade school there, and now they're, they're not replacing your grade school with a hotel, but they're replacing the aging hotel that was on the site of your grade school with a new hotel. Time marches on. There used to be a bar next to my my grade school on the corner there 
and it was if if you grew up in Glendale, you you know this. It was now the drinking age was eighteen, but at this particular bar, it, essentially, if you were old enough to put your money, it was a different time. If you were old enough to put your money on the counter, they would serve you. Um, and um, and that that bar has been long gone a, as well. But I don't know the times they are a changing, which brings me to my my next topic. It appears that Sears, which is, of course, where America used to shop, it appears that Sears is going to go the way of Toys R Us and Borders Books and and Boston Store. Um, Sears has been struggling. They've been closing all sorts of stores. And Sears is kind of in its last throes. There are they have huge amounts of debt. Last Friday, there was a meeting where you had some hedge fund operator who owns a portion of Sears who was trying to bring the company out of bankruptcy, but that that proposal was based on essentially him saying, if, if I do this, I want to take precedence over all this other debt that's out there. And all these other creditors said, no, 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 that that's not the way this is going to work. So it appears long story short, that Sears is going to be going into liquidation sometime relatively soon, and just like with Boston Store, the assets will be sold off to try to pay their their creditors. That's going on. At the same time, there's a story in the business section, of, actually it's a Green Bay Press-Gazette, about how Shopco, now Shopco, founded in 1962 on Green Bay's west side, Shopko currently operates more than 360 stores in 24 states. Um, and, and a lot of the Shopko stores are in smaller sort of areas. Uh, I, I think, I don't know that how many major markets they're in, but you find the Shopko's in, in some of the more rural states and in, in some of the more, I, I would not describe them necessarily as the major areas. Shopko announced a while back that they were closing 39 stores in 19 states, but only one in, in Wisconsin. But story in the Green Bay Press-Gazette, this is what it says. It says Shopko could file for bankruptcy protection from creditors as soon as next week, according to a pharmaceutical drug supplier that says the retailer owes it $67 million. So again, this is the deal. There's a creditor out there that says, "Hey, you know, we've been providing drugs that Shopko is sold through the Shopko pharmacies. They owe us a, a bunch of money. We're concerned that we're not going to be able to get paid on this. The allegations are that maybe some of this is overdue, et cetera, et cetera. So there is a potential, at least, that this would force Shopko into bankruptcy. Now, just because you go into bankruptcy doesn't automatically mean that you're going to close. Sometimes the stores." are able to come up with plans that allow them to reorganize and emerge from bankruptcy and continue as a viable operation. In other cases, you go the route of Toys R Us or Borders Books or Boston Store, Bonton was the parent company, or now what appears to be Sears, and you know you just say there's, there's no way out. The, the debts are so great that and plus you know suppliers what happens a lot of times it's a debt spiral you if you're going to run say a department store you're going to run a boston store or a Gru and jeff's department store what happens is you depend on on credit you depend on a supplier let's say we're, we're let's say we're, we're selling i don't know um, men's outerwear so we depend on our suppliers to essentially front us the men's outerwear and then what we do is once we sell it, 
we we pay for it. Well, once you start to get into one of these death spirals and you start to get late, what happens is your suppliers say, well, okay, you know, you, you owe us $5 million on what we previously sent you. We're not sending you any more until you pay us what you owe us. And you say, well, I don't have the money now to, to pay you what you owe. And then it ends up being this sort of death spiral. But it looks like Sears is going to be essentially liquidated unless some miracle happens. And, you know, who knows exactly what's going on with ShopGo, but ShopGo appears to be in trouble as well. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. For years and years and years, Sears was the gold standard when it came to department store shopping. In, in this country and, and in this area as well. I mean, I remember, I, I can remember back late 60s, early 70s. I mean, you had this giant Sears store on North Avenue. I mean, Sears really was where Milwaukee went to, to shop. You had Sears stores all over the state and all over the country. And, and now it appears that, that that run is is ending. Now, they had a great run, lasted for a long time, but they weren't able to survive. It appears that ShopGo might be experiencing the, the same thing. Some people say it's all the Internet. You know, it, it's Internet shopping that has killed the department stores. Is that the case? Was, was Sears's problem? Is, Sears's pro- is ShopGo's problem? Was Sears's problem Internet shopping or was it something more? Are there things that you think these stores could have done that might have changed this or was it just this inevitable cycle that's out there you have changes in people's habits did was the internet destined to perhaps kill department store shopping like it completely and totally changed the newspaper business for example 414-799-1620 that's the accident mortgage talk and text line i've got my own theories and i'll share with you in just a moment but but what went wrong here we discuss. It's 143, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 145, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. ShopGo it was originally founded in Green Bay in the early 1960s. Story in the Green Bay Press Gazette suggests ShopGo next week might be filing for bankruptcy protection and implies that they, they owe tens of millions of dollars to a pharmaceutical provider and they're late in making those payments. Sears, it appears, a, a last-ditch effort to try to save the company failed at the end of last week, which may lead to liquidation. You know, could, could these businesses have been saved? Can they be saved? Mike and Sheboygan. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hello. I think it's a combination of a few things, um, one being lack of selection and not being able to find what you want when you get there and, and really them not ever changing anything. Right. And the other thing is is lack of people actually wanting to be there that are working there and helping people out. Um, I think they just go there to work and don't really want to help anybody out. There's a few places that I go that have really done a turnaround and places that I haven't shopped in a long time that I actually bought things from now. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a combination of a lot of things that, you know, like, I don't know, that, that the product isn't there. And, I mean, I, right. if you really wanted to buy there, they price match. So, I mean, you can buy there. But um, it's just, you know, why go there if you're not going to get waited on or helped out like you well, should be? And, and well, customer service is a big thing. There, there's no question yeah, about it. I mean, you. people people will pay extra to be yep. treated well and for attentive customer service. And, and that's right. especially, I mean, thanks for calling that. that I mean, that's. 
that is one part of of the business model that's out there. Given the fact that it is easy to to shop nowadays. I mean, I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example. This is this is a bad on me, but my the headphones that I wear when I when I work out at the gym they they broke, and and instead of like going to a local store and buying them. I, I, I went online yesterday. I'm a member of Amazon Prime. I, I found exactly what I wanted in about 30 seconds. I clicked the Buy Now button, and when I go home today, I'm going to get two of these you know sets of, of headphones for like 12 bucks a piece. I've replaced them, and it saved me the time. I was able to do it. Last, uh, it was actually this morning. I was reading a story, and it was a, and it referenced the new book that had just come out. The book seemed intriguing. Instead of going to the, the bookstore, 30 seconds, I, I go to Amazon.com, I, I find the book that's on there, I order it, it's going to be there on, on Thursday. And so, I mean, I admit it's this convenience, especially for somebody like me. Now, there's some stuff that I, I wouldn't buy online. If I want to buy a men's suit or something, you know, and it's, I, I mean, I need to go in and I need to have it fitted. But for a lot of these types of products, uh, especially some of the smaller ones, I, I think I'm just as guilty as everybody else. 414-799-1620. Phil in Janesville. Phil, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, Thanks Phil. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. Yeah, you know, I'm 63. When I was a kid, Sears was my Amazon. Uh, they had the big fall catalog. They had the specialty catalogs. And I think they really doomed themselves when they pulled the plug on their catalog operation. They okay. were really set up to be... To morph it, you know, to go online, to 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 follow or to lead the way, and uh, I know I have a son that works at corporate headquarters at Kohl's, and at the mall in Janesville, Sears is closing. Kohl's is thriving. I know Kohl's has got a deal with Amazon, yeah. And uh, I really think they were set up to be what Amazon became. Well, you know, it's interesting because Kohl's is a classic example of. Of, of a business that I think has done a good job of adapting and, and kind of embracing the, the reality that's out there. I also think they've done, I, I think it is important to keep your stores looking fresh and clean and clear and updated. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that you can say that. I, I hate to generalize about all the Sears stores, but the Sears stores that I went into look dated. This I haven't. I don't go to Shopco that much, but I can remember going into Shopco stores and they looked. And I'd use the word dated, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. I mean, no, th- thanks for calling. I mean, that's that's it. Let's see, uh, Jeff. This is from Chris. I live in Walworth County. We have all sorts of national chains building new stores like Fleet Farm, Meyer, etc. We also have a Shopco that's up for sales. Like Sears, the Shopco building is an absolute dump. The outside has bricks broken all over the place, and the store is just horrible. Sears never invested in the store experience, and Shopco unfortunately followed suit. Okay, here's another text. If you go to the Shopco where I live, they usually have only one cashier, and it takes forever to get out if you want to buy anything. That's why I don't go there um, a- at all. You know, I, I, I mean, I, I will say this. I mean, I think it's, again, it ties back to what we were talking about a minute ago with the, the, the customer service. Here's somebody who makes the point I just did. Jeff, I went into a Shopco store recently, and it seemed very dated. They've done little to make their stores more modern or more appealing. Yeah, you've got to keep up with, with the times. And, and even at that, I mean, I acknowledge that sometimes you're fighting a losing battle. I don't know what newspapers could have done, for example, to, to deal with the changes the Internet brought to the industry. But, 
It didn't adapt very well. 414-799-1620. Larry, who's calling us from Illinois. Larry, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yes, sir. Um, I'm picking up your radio station here, and I must say I like listening to WTMJ. Well, thank you. We appreciate that. Seems to make a lot of sense, not just a lot of talk, if you know what I mean. But Thank you. We'll, we'll probably include that call in a promo somewhere along the line. Thanks for the call. <laughs> I won't ask for a fee. <laughs> but anyway, here about serious my experiences. Um, I went in there one day to look for appliances, and I thought their selection was poor and their prices were very high. So right. I ruled that out. Then one time I went in to get a new a garage door opener, which was different from my own, and I asked the guy to explain to me how it worked because it had buttons that you know were not on the one that I had. And he basically just blew me off and didn't want to be bothered. Right. And that was it. And then the worst thing was my mother bought a day bed for the senior center she was moving into, and they told us it would be assembled. So we get so I go to the home where she's going to move into. I wait for them to come, no assembly. They said, we don't do that. But I said, they promised. <laughs> well, we don't do that. He said, they do that all the time. So I called, to make matters worse, I called um, Sears, uh, some 800 number somewhere, and I explained to them that, and I was pretty upset about it. And they said, don't worry. I think I called somewhere in the Philippines. And the girl said, we're going to set an assembly team. Really? You have an assembly team? Okay. So I think that assembly team must have been coming from the Philippines. They never showed up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I get it. No, th- thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Thanks for the kind words. It, it, it is the and, – and here's – Here's the thing. I'm getting a couple people who are making the point that, well, you know, there's other department stores, for example, that that kind of, you know, looked looked sort of crummy and, and they were able to survive. And some people are saying Walmart. Well, I mean, here's the different thing. Walmart. Now, first of all, I, I think Walmart and I'm not a Walmart shopper. I, I just I have issues with Walmart. But but regardless, I also appreciate that Walmart has its its niche. Um, I, I think Walmart has made a huge effort to try to keep their stores clean and clear. But but Walmart, for example, Walmart ha- has has this niche. They've got everything, and they've got really really low prices. Kmart, which was you know all, I don't know if Kmart acquired Sears or Sears acquired Kmart, whichever way that worked. I mean Kmart, I always thought they looked like junk stores. And you know compared to I mean Walmart's, I think in general look like kind of Taj Mahal's compared to Kmart's, and I think people made that that distinction. But but Sears, you know Sears for example, you know you weren't getting you weren't getting rock bottom low prices on everything at, at Sears. Sears wasn't set up to, for that, and so if you're going to be charging more than the ultimate super discounter, what you have to do is you have to offer things like service and stuff. And I, I think they failed. Mike and Glendale. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi, I love your show. Thank you, sir. Uh, I think this is a great topic. Um, in my opinion, um, the death spiral of the Sears and the Toys R Us <clears throat> has a lot to do or almost all to do with the Internet and Amazon. And we all know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, aside from that, I do believe that there were some things that the Shopco's and the Sears and the Toys R Us could have done mm-hmm. um, prior to the emergence of the online consumer. Um, which was they could have gone out and bought more warehouse space to ramp up their inventory. They could have invested in personnel. 
to develop right. more high-tech IT departments to develop online consumers. Right. Walmart has survived because they were right there with Amazon right. in terms of selling stuff to people online. Right. And uh, essentially the other guys weren't. Um, and, you know, I think that's pretty much the gist of it. You know, you can look at, you can talk about were there, how was the upkeep on their storefronts and stuff. It was, I mean, yes, I remember there was a Toys R Us that was just shuttered on 27th and Howard. Right. Um, and, yeah, you walked into their store, and it was just easier to navigate through the toy section at Walmart, which is just down the street a little bit. Right. And so, yes, there's. I do agree with that, but, I mean, mostly you put 99% of this just on their inability to forecast. You, you, right, and anticipate. Right, no, thank you. So. See, I, I think you're on to – thanks for calling, Mike. I, I mean, I, I actually think you're on to something, but at, at the same time, at, at the same time, there are – chain stores, what I'm going to call the department stores, that, that are thriving. I mean, you, you've been to a Target lately? I mean, my, my gosh, I mean, you know, the, the Target stores, most of the ones that I go to, and I understand that they've closed a couple, but some of the Target stores I go to, I mean, the parking lot, just absolutely packed. And and what did Target do? Well, Target recognized that I, I think, okay, you, you want to have a certain quality of product. You want to have a certain price point. They've done a great job, I think, by saying, okay, we're, we're, we're going to make us our a one-stop shop. So now you've got, you know, food, you've got liquor, you've got things like that that are at the targets. It, it, it's all those different dynamics that are going on. And I don't know that that would have saved, I don't know that that would have saved Sears, I, I think. But, but there's a lot of mismanagement, I think, that went on at, at Sears and at Kmart. And, and now they, they just end up in that death spiral. I don't ultimately know what's going to happen at Shopco. But again, Shopco has been a big fabric of this state, particularly like the Green Bay area, for the better part of, what, like 55-plus years now. And it sounds like Shopco could very well be going the the route of, of a Sears. Can they turn it around? Well, you hope so, because they employ you know thousands of people, ultimately, throughout the company. But not a good development. It's 156. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, we're going to talk Packers and their new coach. Stick around. 208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I say this on this program all the time, that whenever you're considering doing something new, you're considering making a change, you you always, and somebody will say, well, do you like this or whatever? My question is always, well, compared to what? All right, are you... Do you do you like you you've got cable television? Do you like the cable TV? Well, yeah, I, I, I like it. Would you know? But the alternative would be compared to what? You know, would you be happier if you went to satellite TV or, or whatever? You're always, you know, it it's one thing to say, okay, I like or don't like something. But if you're actually considering making a change, you have to ask that alternative: Would I be happier with the new thing than I am with the old thing? I mean, I, I'm not a guy that always believes in chasing the, the newest bright, shiny object. You know, squirrel, there it is, go. I, that, 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 that's, just, that's just not me. Now, it could be that the newest bright, shiny object is, okay, you know, that it, it's worth going for it. We talked about this the other day with regard to Apple. One of the problems that the Apple company is having is because they've got – their new phones that are coming out. Pretty much everybody nowadays who wants an iPhone has one. So it, it's not, at least in the United States, it's not 
an emerging market. There's, there's not new customers that are out there buying the phones as a general rule. So what they're doing is they're counting on their growth coming from people who have an existing iPhone that says, okay, I want to trade in my iPhone and get a new one. And that's where, I mean, it's a tougher sell because I say, well, I like the phone that I have here. And, and yes, it's not that I might not like a new phone or something like that, but I like the phone I've got, and I don't think I'd like the new one to $1,000 worth. I think I'll continue to, to keep with, with this one. So that's always a problem that you have com- compared to what? Well, the big story in Wisconsin that broke yesterday afternoon is that the Green Bay Packers, they have made the decision to go with a, a they've hired a new coach. Mike McCarthy fired with, what, four games left in the season after a very, very successful run. Now, you could argue it could have been more successful, uh, I, and I get that. But Mike McCarthy had a very, very successful run as the coach of the Packers. They made the decision, the, the powers that be, I think, made the decision that he had kind of, his time, his time was up. And that whether it was the players that were tired of of the message whether it's that his message got got old, whether it's that his tactics got old, or whether that there were some internal things going on, you know, w- within the offices that might have precipitated this. I mean, we don't know. But, you know, Mike McCarthy, I mean, his time was up. Joe Philbin was the interim head coach. He would not remember me, but I met him um, when he was – I, I met him once or twice when he was at Green Bay the, for his first run, and I, I've always liked Joe Philbin. I, I think he's a really good, decent, straight shooter. But the truth of the matter is the, the Packers were ready to move into in a, in a different direction, and I don't think he was ever realistically going to be considered for the head coaching spot. Maybe if the Packers had won their last four games in a big fashion, maybe that would have put pressure on them. But you know, after losing on the road in Chicago and laying that egg at home against Detroit in the last game of the year, Joe Philbin had no chance to be hired as the Green Bay Packers head coach, and, and that's probably good. I think it's time for a change. So... Lots of names that were thrown around. Lots of speculation that it was going to be one of the guys from the Patriots. Maybe it would be somebody with head coaching experience. Well, the Packers, um, they've, I think they made a decision which might have surprised some people. New head coach is going to be a guy named Matt LaFleur, as you've been hearing about all day. He's young. He's 39 years old. No head coaching experience. He just finished his first year as the offensive coordinator for the Tennessee Titans. Then before that, he he was the offensive coordinator for the Los Angeles Rams. He worked in Atlanta under uh, the guy who is now the coach of the 49ers, Kyle Shanahan. He was the Falcons quarterback coach in 2016 when uh, Matt Ryan won the Most Valuable Player Award and advanced to the Super Bowl. He's been in the league since 2008, but never been a head coach. He's 39 years old, and I, I think the Packers look at him and say, okay, this is one of these, the, the, the new breed of, of guys that's out there. Um, we, we think he's got these great offensive ideas. He's agreed that he, he wants to try to keep the same defensive coordinator, so he's not going to rock the boat completely. So they've made this decision. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, all day you've been hearing from the experts, the people that follow the, the, the team intricately, the people who understand the X's and O's. But I, I, 
I come at it from the perspective of just sort of a, a fan. All right, are you excited about this particular hire? Will this be a hire that ends up being better than Mike McCarthy? Because that's ultimately one of the standards you judge things by. Is this is this the right guy, in your opinion, to you know reinvigorate the franchise? You've had two losing years in a row. The window on Aaron Rodgers is is closing. I don't think it's closed now, but he's going to be what thirty five in December. I mean, it's it's or thirty six in December, whatever. I mean, there, there's only so many years that are left uh, with Aaron Rodgers. But from your perspective, are you excited about this, or would you have liked to have seen the Packers go another way? Maybe a bigger name. Or maybe somebody with head coaching experience. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Are you excited about this hire? We discuss in just a moment. Are you optimistic that the Packers have done the right thing? They've given him a four-year contract. So he will be here essentially for um, the rest of the Rodgers era. Presuming that, that he doesn't get fired and that Rogers, you know, plays out his contract. 414-799-1620. Are you excited for football season next year? Did the Green Bay Packers do the right thing? Is this going to be a step up over where Mike McCarthy was when Mike McCarthy was let go? We discuss in just a minute. If you're on the line, please hold on. 215, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 218, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 414-799-1620. That is the Iconet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, the Green Bay Packers make news yesterday. Eight coaching vacancies in the NFL. They are the first one to fill. It, it was a name that I, I don't think it was on a lot of people's at least lists when you speculated who was going to be most likely. A 39-year-old, Matt LaFleur, he, um, no head coaching experience. He's been an offensive coordinator. He was the offensive coordinator for Tennessee this past year. Year before that, he was the offensive coordinator in Los Angeles. Um, well, apparently well regarded, but young, no head coaching experience. Is this the right choice for the Packers at this point in time? Would you have liked to have seen them go with a more established coach with a track record? Is this going to work out well? Is it going to be better than McCarthy? 414-799-1620, which at the end of the day is is the ultimate thing. Dave in Waukesha. Dave, you're first. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. How are you doing? Real well, thank you. Good, good move, bad move? I think a good move. I, I think, you know, um, you know, going for the retreads and stuff like that, you know, that gets kind of old after a while. And, mm-hmm. and you know, you get somebody that's young and hungry and he's got new ideas and, and things like that. I mean, um, you know, well, I mean, McCarthy didn't have any head coach experience. Right. So, I mean, Holmgren, you know, did, Holmgren didn't have any head coaching experience. No, yeah, exactly. You know, and, and the whole thing is, the main thing is, is, is can he get control of the locker room? And that's that's going to be the main thing. But I think, I think he's, able, you know, at 39, I think he's going to be able to, you know, Relate to the players, maybe. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think so. He'd not be a you know not be a friend to him, you know, like anything else. But right. I, mean, I think he's, he can relate and, and things like that. And he had his success, and you know, he had a good, a good you know offensive mind. And yeah. things like that. So you are optimistic. Yeah, the main thing will be: does he surround himself with the right people? Right, and and as long as it's at it, as it, does the general manager give him the talent he needs to succeed. I have a couple of people that are tweeting that it doesn't matter who the coach is, uh, unless you have a better offensive line, for example, nothing's going to happen. Well, yeah, but I mean, you know, even look at the Bucks. I mean, they still had a lot of talent or Jason Kidd, and it just wasn't happening, and all of a sudden, 
Oh, yeah. good point. No, right. I mean, thank you. Great point. You know, the Bucks tweak a couple things and they go from, I don't know, being an eighth seed to arguably one of the three or four best teams in, in basketball. Now, that's a great point. Um, here's a text. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This is the way professional sports are going these days with young head coaches and young general managers in baseball. It's all analytics. And, and I think there there is an element about that. I mean, here... I had an opportunity, Mike McCarthy wouldn't know me from Adam either, but I had an opportunity to meet him on a couple different occasions. And I, I just think that the problem was it, it got, it got stale. And, and that, that, that happens. Um, one of the reasons, okay, you just had the college playoffs. I mean, um, Nick Saban's been in Atlanta, in Atlanta. He's been in Alabama forever. But, but one of the reasons, and you look at college basketball, you have these coaches that are there forever. One of the reasons that I think that happens is there's always a turnover of players in college. The coach is going to be there. The coach is going to be the constant. And the players come in. They play for a couple of years. Then then they graduate, and, and, and they end up moving on. That's not necessarily the case in professional sports. And it's why I, I don't think in football or in pro basketball, and I understand there's some exceptions, and in baseball, th- this incredible longevity you, you don't see it a lot because I think the professional athletes, after a while, they, they, they tune out things. And I think what happens is I think it's always a challenge for coaches. Let's face it, no matter what you do for a living, there's always a challenge of trying to stay fresh. You know, you, you can't. I don't care what it is. My guess is take take your business. I don't care what your business is and what you do for a living. My guess is the way you do things today is different is probably different than the way you did it 10 years ago. And if it's not, my guess is you're you're probably, you know, you're struggling a, a bit. You always have to adapt. You have to be willing to change. You have to be open to these different ideas. And I'm not saying get away from the, the fundamental things you do, but you've got to be open to that sort of stuff. And I think after a while, the, the shelf life on professional sports coaches just kind of wears down. I hope Mike McCarthy goes on to have a very, very successful, if he wants, you know, career, you know, coaching somewhere else, if that's what he ends up wanting to do, because I think he had a great term tenure in, in Green Bay and I hope the departure was you know no hard feelings all around I don't I don't think I'm with Dave I, I'm, I am with Dave I don't think they should have gone with a retread I think this is exciting hopefully the guy's got the personality type that he's going to be able to relate to the players he's going to be able to surround himself with good guys and the Packers are going to be back in the playoff next year but I think this is a cause for excitement and it's something that I think the Packers had to do and, okay, maybe he's not the biggest name that was out there, but Mike Holmgren wasn't the biggest name that was out there. Uh, Mike McCarthy wasn't the biggest name that was out there, and they both went on to have extremely successful runs. Do I think that this guy is more likely to be a Mike McCarthy or a Mike Holmgren as opposed to a Lindy Infante or a Mike Sherman? Yeah, I do. It's early on. I'm going to be optimistic. I am going to be the glass is three quarters full guy. No question about it. But now, now it's going to be time to deliver. 224, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 226, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 39 degrees outside. I will, I will take this. And if you look at the long-term forecast, there's no 
No big snowstorms on the horizons. I understood it, it, it kind of rained like heck yesterday, and they're going to have a bit of a cold snap. But as somebody who is not necessarily a fan of winter, I understand. I live in Wisconsin by choice. But, but still, I kind of find myself counting the days until spring and Catcher, pitchers and catchers report well, sometime you know next month, and then you're going to have spring training baseball games. Uh, the daylight hours are already increasing, so we're sort of over the hump. Now, we're going to get cold. We're going to get snow in January and February, but as far as I'm concerned, every nice day or temperate day in early January is a day closer to April, and I will take it, especially after the crummy October and November uh, that, that we ended up having. Hey, here's an interesting moral dilemma. Remember a, a while back you had the horrible situation where you had that shooting in Las Vegas and you had the, the guy that went up to the 30-whatever floor of the uh, Mandalay Bay Hotel and, and then shot out the window and shot all those people that were at the country music concert down below. Well, all right, here's the deal. He, he He's died, and Apparently, he left behind a hoard of guns and firearm accessories in his two Nevada homes and in the hotel suite that he used to do all the shootings from. His estate is valued at about $1.4 million, not including these guns. And what's going to happen is that $1.4 million estate is going to be divided among the families of the 58 people who were were shot, you know, in that mass shooting. So, okay, that that's where that money is going to go. But now the issue that the lawyers are trying to wrestle with is, what do you do with the guns? He's got all these guns that have, first of all, that they are they are valuable in and of themselves. And then because of the guy's notoriety, and I'm not saying that I would run out and buy one of these guns, but because it was a gun owned by this mass shooter, there are people out there who would perhaps even pay a premium for it. So here's here's the issue that, that's going on there. What do you do with these 50-plus guns, including pistols and high-powered long arms and firearms components? Do you auction these things off, taking the money, and then using that money and, again, giving it to surviving family members of victims? Or do you say, that's morbid and that's creepy, and, you know, we don't want to be we don't want to be generating money based on, uh, again, these types of weapons. And what we should do is just take these things and, and end up destroying them. And that's actually the battle that the, the court is is kind of wrestling with now. What do you end up doing? So, Gru, what do you do? Do you sell the guns or do you just destroy them? See, you say you just destroy them. It's just even if even if this is going to raise. A hundred thousand, and I don't know what people would bid on these, but fifty or a hundred thousand dollars that would go to family, f- surviving family members of victims. You just say that that just just destroy it. It's it's too it's, it's in bad taste. All right, Gru says destroy them. I think if it were me, I think I'd go the other way, and I appreciate that. I'm not going to ridicule that position. That's why this is kind of a, a tough issue to deal with. To me, if you can take a horrible thing like this. And you can do anything to make it even a little bit better. So if this means you could sell these things off and, and get an extra two, three, four thousand dollars that you could give to a surviving family member of a victim, I, I would do that. I think that's how I would come down on it. I would say this. 
If it were me, I wouldn't be bidding on one of these things, but I have no doubt that there's a market that's out there. Anyhow, the judge is trying to decide what to do in this case. I have no prediction as to what they're going to do. I think I'd sell them and take the dough. My producer says uh, he'd just bury them. Either way, I understand. 235, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I don't know how your employer handles it, but nationwide, the estimates are that only about 16% of American workers get paid maternity or paternity leave from their employers. You have a baby, you get paid time off. The estimates are only about 16% of all American workers get that. In California, there is a state law which says, and it goes back to 2002, which says that that workers are entitled to maternity or paternity leave. The leave program is paid for by a payroll tax, um, an employee's payroll tax of, of 1%. So the employers are taxed. The money is put in a fund. And then the way it works is that new parents can receive a percentage of their earnings up to $1,216 a week. So you can, you can you know be on leave, and the state, through this fund, which is financed by a payroll tax, will pay you um, up to you know 1200 bucks a week. Now, the way it works in California is that this deal only works for six weeks. You can get six weeks of leave, and then uh, birth mothers get an extra six weeks of of disability. Okay, there's four other states that offer this as well, and again, it's between four and twelve weeks. So, I mean, California is very, very, I, I think, generous right now compared to other states, but there are limits. There's a new governor, Moonbeam Jerry Brown, is gone. He was term limited out at the age of eighty, and so there is a new governor that's taken over in California. And one of the first things that he has done is he sa- he's saying that I don't think our family leave program is adequate. I think we need to do more. And so here is his proposal. Like I say, the state currently offers six weeks of partly paid leave, up to you know up to twelve hundred dollars is the maximum. It's a percentage of your salary. Not everybody gets twelve hundred bucks a week. It just kind of depends. All right, what he is saying is he is saying I want, I want as a matter of law. I want us to require six months of parental leave, six months of parental leave. The plan would allow new parents to divide six months of paid leave as they see fit. So, Dad, if you wanted to take two months and Mom wanted to take four months, you could do that. If you each wanted to take three months, you could do that. If mom wanted to take six months of paid leave and dad goes back to work right away, you'd be allowed to do that. But the bottom line is six months of paid leave required and to be paid for again by the employers. They don't even put an estimate on what this would cost, but you know it's going to be, you know it is going to be huge. But at the same time, the argument is, well, it's important to have one or two parents that stay home 
during the you know formative time, and we think that the societal needs justify this. Now, the employers are going to, of course, have to pay for it, so that's going to affect costs. In addition, the employers are going to have to deal with it. I mean, think of a situation where you know, you're in a, let's say it's a relatively small office, and one of the employees is either on maternity or paternity leave. Well, that, that's got to be covered. In this case, let's say somebody decides to take six months. All right, you got to cover that for six months. So let's tee this up. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, Tony Evers is now the governor of the state of Wisconsin. Should we look at doing something like this? in Wisconsin in the interest of saying, hey, we want to be pro-family. Now, by the way, there's nothing that stops individual employers from doing whatever they want to do as far as offering paid maternity and paternity leave. Um, Many, many companies give new parents between 2 and 16 weeks. Um, You know, some, like some big companies in Silicon Valley, give um, up to four months. But like I say, only 16% of American workers get paid leave from their employers. So should we do this in Wisconsin? Six months. That's what they think is a good idea in California. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Would you like something like this? And more importantly, could we afford something like this? What would be the effect of productivity? And is this the role of government? We'll talk about it in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. 414-799-1620 is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Paid leave for up to six months for paternity or maternity. We discuss in just a moment. It's 240. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 243. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If If you're just tuning in, right now in California, as a matter of state law, um, employ people, you don't have to work for the state. But any employee in the state of Wisconsin is entitled, in the state of California, is entitled to up to six weeks of maternity or paternity leave. And they're able to get a percentage of their salary up to 1200 bucks a week. That's, that's the maximum. Not everybody gets 1200 but you, you can get up to 1200 depending on how much you make. Uh, it's, it's the, again, you get six weeks of that. The new governor says that's not enough. I think what we need to do is have six months of paid maternity or paternity leave. The way it would work is you divide it between the two parents. You could each take three months. One could take one month. The other could take five months. It would presumably be paid for by a larger payroll tax than already exists on the employers. Good idea, bad idea. 414-799-1620. Let's start with uh, Jen in Phoenix. Jen, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi. I just wanted to say that I absolutely agree with it. My daughter just had a baby six weeks ago. The dad was only off for two weeks and had to go back. And my daughter, it'll be two months when she goes back. Neither one of them were paid. And I feel like this should definitely be something federal for every state, not just specific states. Six months? Absolutely. Okay. Now, where is where is the money going to come from? Let, I mean, let's just let's use the twelve hundred bucks, and I understand it's going to vary from you know person to person. But um, where where is that twelve hundred bucks a month a week going to come from? Whether it's a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars or whatever the dollar amount is, where's that money going to come from? I think that it should either a come from 
building it up over checks that you have gotten, gotten, I'm sorry, uh-huh. and put in a separate um, account. Or you know how they take out federal, maybe take out paternity, that type of stuff. Um, and I think that maybe that way, or it should be on the employer. They make enough money for that. Okay, well, and that, that's the way it works in California. Right now there's a payroll tax of 1% that they, they take from all the employers and they put it in this fund and they use to pay that. Hey, are you, you're calling from Phoenix, Arizona, right? I am. I actually grew up, um, I've only been here two years. I grew up in Milwaukee. Um, so this is really ironic that I just happened to turn you guys on <laughs> and it was this. <laughs> Outstanding. Okay, it's 37 degrees here. I'm just curious. What is, uh, what is it in Phoenix? Um, so it's probably about 65, 70. Ah, got it. Thanks a lot. Yeah. For, thanks a lot, Jen. I appreciate you listening. Um, I, okay. That, that, that's the, that's the argument. She said, Hey, my, my daughter just, my daughter just had a baby. Um, and you know, she, she had to go back in, in two months and it was unpaid. Uh, the husband only got two weeks. Uh, it, it was a hardship on them. All right. I, I get it. Is that an argument for this? 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Winifred, who's calling us. Winifred, good afternoon. Good afternoon. I just called because I thought I could share the experience of the similar system that they have in Europe, where I lived and worked for many years. They have almost an identical system in many of the European countries. In in Italy, where I was, um, women would leave for a pregnancy leave, and when they were young, oftentimes would have three babies in a row. Right. Uh, and they were out sometimes for three years. And the consequence was that a lot of companies start stopped hiring young people who were capable of having children and hired older employees or kept on older employees and didn't replace them mm-hmm. until they retired. And a lot of the European countries, Italy included, are now reversing the policies because they became unmanageable. Well, that's the other thing. It, 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 there's also the practical requirement of, let, let's say you work in a relatively small business where there's three or four or five people. Somebody right. goes on maternity leave or paternity leave, and right. it, it's one thing to cover for them for two weeks or three weeks or four weeks. Covering for them for six months, i, I got to believe that's a huge hardship on the employers. It is because they have to not only pay for the employee who's on maternity or paternity leave, but also pay for the one that has to cover the job that they were doing. And as I said, what often happens is they don't just have one baby, at least this would happen in Italy, they'd have one baby and then they'd have another one and the same program applied, and then they would have another one. And so often you had to keep the job open for three years. Right. And while, so you're, and to your point, you're, you're paying somebody to do that job and you're also paying the payroll tax. Thanks for the perspective. I appreciate Look, I... I, I, again, I, I have two issues here. First of all, I, I think offering parental leave is a wonderful. I don't know what our policies are. I'm not having kids, so I, I just I think it's a it's a wonderful benefit for employers to offer. All right, and and I think it's something that would make it attractive to want to work at a particular company. But but that's different than saying that we think the government should require it of employers. That's a different thing. It's one thing if you want to offer it as a benefit. It's another thing if you want to make it an entitlement program. And I got to admit, that's kind of where I draw the line. And having said that, with all due respect to our first caller who's calling us from Phoenix, I think it's, I think six months is nuts. I, I just do. If you wanted to say, all right, four weeks, 
I, again, if you can get past my objection that that I don't know that I think I don't think that the government should be requiring this, and you turn it into entitlement program, I, at at the very least, I mean, six months is an awful long time. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be able to take uh, again some sort of leave, but we're talking about we are talking about paid leave to do this, and and I think six months is crazy. Six weeks, I don't know, but six months, give me a break. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Jim in Wauwatosa. Jim, good afternoon. Hey, how you doing, Jeff? Real well, thank you, sir. What do you think? You know, I think if states consider this policy, they also have to uh, keep in mind uh, the possible unintentional consequences. And three, I think of offhand. You know, uh, the first one is, um, you know, employers may decide they don't like this policy and they'll leave the state. Yep. I think the second unintended consequences are, from a hiring standpoint, they may decide not to hire someone, say, between the ages of 20 and 40, those uh, baby-making years, they call it, right. on such right. an extended leave. Right. And now, people would argue, would argue that that would be, I mean, illegal to discriminate against somebody for that. But, again, then you have the issue of having to prove it. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. And I think the third unintended consequences, you know, are, you know, just for the uh, in- employer's uh, uh, bottom line. I think those costs are going to be <laughs> passed on to the consumer and or uh, it's going to be passed on to the shareholders or have negative effect on the shareholders if it's a public company. Well, you know, it's interesting, so- Jim, because the, the governor of California who's floated this idea they're not even coming out with any estimates as to how much this is going to cost. You know, if if, if there's already a 1% payroll tax and, and that's designed to pay for like six weeks, can you imagine what the tax is going to be that's going to have to pay for six months? And you're right, that money has to come from somewhere. And I understand that there's some people who say, oh, they, they, they're rich, they've got enough money. Well, okay. I mean, tell that to the tell that to the small businessmen with like five or six or ten employees or something like that that you've got enough money and here all of a sudden we're going to increase your expenses by X percent and you're going to have to figure out how to fill this job when somebody's gone. Yeah, it's a dramatic uh, increase, and uh, I'm with you on that. It's, right. Uh, no, no, six thanks. Months is way too long. Well, right. I mean, thanks for the call. And again, I, I don't want people to misunderstand. I I think I, I mean I never had kids, okay? But I mean I think this is. I think this is it's a nice I think it's a nice benefit. It is certainly something that if I were if it were relevant to me and I was looking for a job and I was deciding between like two or three companies that I wanted to work for that were interested in having me work there and, and again if it were relevant this would be a factor. Hey, you know, we're planning on having kids. It would be nice to be able to stay home for 3 or 4 months. You know, and help raise the the child. I mean, I, I think I get it. I understand why why people like that. But the flip side is, if a company wants to offer it, go with God. I, I think that's tremendous. But this isn't the company making the choice to offer it. This is the state saying, as a condition of doing business in our state, this is what you have to do. And while I think it's nice. I, I, my question is, how much is this going to cost as a practical matter? And I'm not just talking about, you know, what the percentage of the tax is going to be. I'm talking about what is going to be the effect of productivity and all these things moving forward. And is this something that's really subject to, to, uh, abuse? In any event, I don't know where this is going to go in California, but this was the, the new governor of California is about as far left as they go. And, and he's also somebody whose name is mentioned occasionally as perhaps a, a candidate for president against Donald Trump in uh, 2020 or whoever the Republicans nominate. There is 
in some respects, there's going to be a rush to the left. And I get the appeal of this. Hey, you know, you shouldn't have to go back to work. But the, the devil is in the details. And this is one where I just I, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon in Wisconsin, even though we have a new governor who's all about compassion, I guess, and wanting to take care of people. It's 2.53. When we come back, we're going to find out what John and Melissa have on their minds on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Please stick around. This is Jeff Wagner.